Hey, you remember, um, remember getting a warning? Have you ever gotten a warning? You know, like from the police? Um, or your parents? Or maybe your spouse? Anybody? Warnings? Okay, all right, yeah, a few of you. What's the point of a warning? Uh, a little feedback, it's fine. What's the point of a warning? Not do it again. To not do it again? Think about what you're doing? Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Okay, the, what was that? Get another chance. Maybe you don't go quite as far. Like, you, you know, you, 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 you were kind of going across the line here, but I'm warning you, and so you don't cross the line. Something like that, right? That's a warning. We've all had warnings. I remember a warning I got years ago. This one was from a policeman, and um, it really made me be more careful in the future. It's like, whoa, okay, now that's long faded. But um, at the time, it worked. Well, today in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, we come to the first of five warnings. The book of Hebrews is characterized by these five warnings that we see throughout. And today in chapter 2, we come to the very first one. But let's review real quick before we jump into it. Um, In the first few verses of chapter 1, we saw the magnificence of Jesus, the Son I believe in the name of Jesus. Jesus is greater than the angels. He is the creator. He is the heir. He is the savior. He is the exact representation. He's huge. And then we saw in the rest of chapter 1 last week that he is superior to the angels. And the significance of that will come clearer this morning. The recipients of this letter, as you recall, were Hebrew believers who had trusted Jesus for their salvation. They were Jews. Hebrew believers, but because of persecution, they were in danger of going back to the old, familiar, comfortable, old covenant ways of doing things in order to escape persecution, so they thought. So the book of Hebrews is written to warn them, don't do it. It's a warning. The whole book is a warning, but there's these five specific warnings. Jesus is far superior to all the old ways, all those old, comfortable, familiar ways. You can trust him. You can count on him. You can depend on him. You can rely on him. So stand firm. That's Hebrews in a nutshell. So turn to chapter 2. If you you need a Bible, the ushers have Bibles here. If you're fairly new to Cornerstone, we believe in the Bible. We believe that the only thing, uh, none of us up here that preach have anything to say except what God says through his word. So if you don't own a Bible, take this one home, keep it, read it. This is the first warning, or this first warning, I should say, is based on a lesser to greater argument. You know what a lesser to greater argument is? It's like when I was a kid and I got in trouble with mom. And I got in trouble with mom. And she said those classic words, just wait till your father gets home. Okay, that's a lesser to greater argument. If you think you're in trouble with me, whoa, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's what the writer of Hebrews is doing here. He's saying 
The angels were messengers of the old covenant. And we're going to unpack that in a minute. Disobeying the old covenant brought on some pretty serious consequences. But Jesus, who is greater than the angels, is the messenger of the new covenant. So disobeying the new covenant will bring on even greater consequences. That's the line of reasoning we're going down. You got that? Whoa. All right, let me try that again. (laughs) This is lesser to greater. And and by the way, the writer of Hebrews was absolutely brilliant. Whoever wrote this book, and we don't know, had an incredible mind of creating these logical arguments and building his case uh, through the book. Let's read the first four verses of chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, that's the old covenant, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, punishment for disobeying the old covenant, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Referring to the new covenant. It was declared at first by the Lord, Jesus, It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now this warning has implications that reach to the very core of our lives. This is is big. This is heavy. This warning has implications to how we live to whom we live for, uh, for our purpose in life. It has implications for our relationship with Jesus Christ. Is it real or is it not? It has implications for how and where we will spend all eternity. It supersedes this life and goes beyond. See, the Christian life is not something that we live by accident. We don't follow Jesus. We We don't grow spiritually by osmosis. You know how you used to study in college? You put your textbook under your pillow, you go to sleep, and all of the data just floats into your brain and you ace the test the next... That's not how it works in the Christian life. I mean, if you're going to put your Bible under your pillow, that's fine, but don't expect to get anything out of it. We have to be intentional, deliberate, diligent to pursue Jesus, to follow hard after him, to die to self, to live this life of following Jesus. We've, we have to make, or in the words of the Hebrew writer here, pay much more careful attention. There's no other path to life. It's, it's serious, it's important, because Jesus is the only way, and if you don't know him, or if you're careless in your relationship with him, or your faith in him, you're in serious danger of wasting your entire life in vain pursuits, and you're in even greater danger of spending all eternity in eternal torment, apart, separated from Jesus. This is serious stuff. I would argue that nothing is more important, at least for the next hour. And no, I'm not preaching for an hour, but this is critical. We need to take seriously this warning 
from the very voice of God through the writer of the Hebrews right down to us today. So let's jump in. There's four elements of this warning that I want us to look at. Four elements of the warning that we see in these four verses. The first element is found in verse 1. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. So the first element of the warning is we've got to pay attention to this. We've got to pay attention to this. Now let's unpack this phrase. Uh, first of all, the very first word there is therefore. Todd talked about this last week. When you see the word therefore, it's going back to what preceded it. These next four verses have everything to do with what was, what was preceded in chapter 1. Namely, that Jesus, the Son of God, is far superior to the angels. Jesus is way better than the angels. The new covenant gospel is way better than the old covenant law. And if there was a punishment for disobeying the old covenant, and there was, then how much more will there be a punishment? Will there be consequences for, for disobeying the new covenant gospel? So we had better pay very close attention. That whole idea, Jesus is better than the angels. Therefore, this lesser to greater argument. Now the next phrase here is, or part of the phrase here is, is that the things we have heard. We, we have to pay attention to the things we have heard. What are the things they have heard? Well, in verse 3, he gives us a hint when he says this great salvation. The things they've heard are the things about Jesus, that he lived, that he died, that he rose again, that he ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father. They had heard that Jesus is the only way to the Father, that there is no life in anything but Jesus alone. Jesus is the king. He's bringing in the kingdom. He's the son of God. He's the creator. He holds everything together. Todd began to unpack this, was it two weeks ago, where, where, where the, when you get down really geeky and look at the molecules in our body and in the chairs and in the carpet and the stones and the wood, they don't know what holds atoms together. And you know what's cool? We do. It's Jesus. He reaches inside of every single atom, nucleus, in the face of the earth and in the universe and holds it together. Is that big? Is that kind of powerful? You want to be on the right side of that guy? Because if he decided, you know what, I'm just going to let go of your molecules, it would be something like splat. The things we have heard is everything that's in this book. For us, it's everything in this book. The revelation of Jesus. But let's look at the actual warning. What is it that we are supposed to do with the things we have heard? We're to pay attention. The language here is strong. It's emphatic. It's something like, you must pay much closer attention to these glorious things of the gospel. If the writer was texting, this would have been all caps with all kinds of emojis and emoticons all around it. Okay, does that register? I mean, he would have been saying, I mean, it's just, it, it, he would shout it. You've got to pay much closer attention. There's, there's words in there that are emphatic, that, are, that, that make it strong. The word, the actual word for pay attention is a nautical term, and it means to hold a ship firm. 
The idea is that the anchor is fastened to the ocean floor to keep the ship from drifting away. It's to hold firm. Hold firm to the things you have heard. Now, in a minute, we're going to see that the danger was that they would drift. That also is a nautical term. So these are like opposites. So the idea is get your anchor firmly planted in the truth of the things you've heard so you don't float away, so you don't drift away. So the writer starts out telling us we need to pay very close attention to the truths we have heard. Why? So that we could avoid the dangers of the second element of this warning. And that is this. We must guard ourselves from drifting and neglecting the truth of Jesus. The writer uses two different terms here to convey this idea of a gradual drifting away from the teachings of the new covenant. Both of these words have the idea of a gradual, careless neglect. This is not an intentional or a deliberate thing. It's not, it's not shaking your fist in the face of God. It's more like that attitude of, yeah, whatever. You ever get that attitude? You ever have that attitude? Whatever. This is the heart of this warning. So let's look at verse 1 again. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Again, this word for drift, it's an old verb that's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. One ancient Greek writer uses it of the river flowing by. The idea is being swept, of, of being swept along in a river. So the idea is you're in a boat and you're going down this river and you're just kind of lazing there, maybe laying in the sun, listening to some tunes, just hanging out. And as you're floating along, there's the dock, there's the rope, there's the place where you can firmly tie down your boat and be secure. You have the oars, you can get over to it. It's not that big of a deal, but you just kind of go, eh, whatever. The problem with this picture is that there's a waterfall up ahead. And you're headed for disaster. And you could have gone over very easily and tied yourself securely to the dock. But you just kind of drifted along. The other term that the writer uses is the word neglect. Down in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This word means to not care, to make light of something, similar to drift. It's not necessarily a deliberate, intentional rebellion. It's just kind of a, eh, whatever attitude. So together, these two terms convey this sense of carelessness about the teachings of Jesus. A carelessness about the truths of the Word of God. It's the sense of ignoring the incredible blessings of such a great salvation. Other things are more important. I'll do the God thing, you know, if I have time and if it's convenient. And if I'm really in a pickle and I need some help, I don't need to go to church. I don't need to hang out with the body. It's just kind of this whiny, you know, no worries if I don't really read the Bible that much. 
I mean, if I feel like it and I have some money in my pocket, I'll stick a little bit in the offering basket when it goes by. I mean, I still believe in all, but it's not that big of a deal, so I'm not going to sweat it. Yeah, I pray some, but, you know, it's no big deal. Whatever. Do you feel the attitude? Do you sense what this is? Now, let me ask a harder question. Have you ever had that attitude? This is huge. This is the warning. Drifting and neglecting and being careless with the things of Jesus is dangerous. Maybe more dangerous than the deliberate, defiant, shaking your fist in God's face. One commentator says that drifting is the besetting sin of our day. Now, this, this text and this message got under my skin this week. And I really had to look inside and see where am I drifting? Where am I neglecting? Where am I being sloppy in my faith? Let me suggest a few of the things that can cause us to drift. A few things that cause us to be careless, to neglect the teachings of Jesus. Number one is busyness. Anybody busy? Anybody too busy? It's unanimous. You just didn't raise your hands. We are so busy that we don't have time to bask in the relationship that we have with Jesus. This very God who holds us together with his hand and his energy and his word, who saved us and gave us life and forgave our sins and wants to have a relationship with us. We're too busy to hang out with him. We're, we're even too busy doing ministry. Now, isn't that ironic? I would say most of us here probably don't have any bad things in your life you need to get rid of. It's good things you need to get rid of. Because we're doing too many good things. And so we're doing too much. There's no time for Bible reading. There's no time for prayer. There's no time to be still and know that he is God. When was the last time you just sat? And I don't mean for three minutes. And stared at the ocean, at the trees. You just sat and listened to the birds singing and the wind blowing through the trees. It just... Just listen, just worship the God who made all that. We're too busy. How many, don't raise your hands, how many didn't have time to read Psalm 119 this week? What was that? Oops. Yeah, it's okay. I won't call on you, Bob. I won't pick you out there. Because we were too busy. Or we forgot. Or we didn't care. I'm not saying that about you. Well, maybe another reason that causes to drift is that we, go, we, we, we drift back to the old ways of doing things. 
Now, this could look a couple different ways. Maybe we drift back and we slip back to the old ways of our old before Christ life. We just get a little bit sloppy and we just gradually let down our guard and we sort of drift back into some of those old patterns and those old habits. Or maybe for those of us that have been believers a long time, we, we go back to the way God worked in our life. You know, we tell the story of how God met us at camp 40 years ago. And we keep telling that story. Not that we shouldn't, but there's, the problem is there's no new stories. And we just rest on the past. And that leads to what might be a third reason we've maybe lost our first love. Being a Christian, being a believer, being a follower of Jesus has become familiar or routine. Even boring. Oh, it's just hard to say that. It's like a married couple that hasn't been intentional about nurturing their love and their relationship and they're slowly drifting apart and they become roommates instead of lovers and they aren't sure where it happened, but they they look around and realize we are just roommates. We're just existing together. Like I said, I had to do some soul searching this week as I studied this, this got under my skin more than other sermons I've preached recently. I've been a follower of Jesus most of my life. I prayed to receive Jesus when I was four. Uh, When I was 12, I kind of confirmed it. When I was 17, I devoted, devoted my life to the Lord. I went to Bible college. It's all I ever wanted to do. I don't really have a before Christ kind of testimony. Well, I guess those first three years, they were, they were pretty rough. <laughs> So I've been a follower of Jesus my whole life, and it all seems pretty familiar. My dad was a pastor. I grew up in the church. I was in the youth group. I went to a Christian high school. You know, it's just all very familiar. Maybe even boring? And there were some pretty good days in the past. There were some pretty great times of growth and seeing God work. But I had to ask myself this week, am I resting on those past days? Am I kind of drifting along based on what God did in my life 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Or am I seeking new adventures on this journey of following hard after Jesus? I don't want to drift. I don't want to neglect. I don't want to be careless. Because that is incredibly dangerous. The consequences of slowly, gradually drifting are the same as if we shake our fist in God's face, flip him off, and walk away in anger. In fact, you're better off doing that because now we know where you stand. The problem is behind that carelessness, behind that neglect, behind that drifting is still the sinful desire to have our own way. It's easier just to float on by the dock. I just want to do it my way, float by the dock. You know what? Who cares about the trouble that's ahead? It is so dangerous to ignore the warnings. Let me tell you a story that might illustrate this a little bit. Years ago in Alaska, there was a a very tragic uh, story that took place. 
Just south of Anchorage, there's, a, there's an inlet of the ocean called Turnigan Arm. It's very narrow. It's very deep, um, very, very long. And, and this is where the second highest tides in the world are. So water goes in and out of that inlet very fast. The water is very cold. And along, when at low tide along the sides of Turnigan Arm, um, there's this, what appears to be, a beautiful smooth, sandy beach. It's just tempting you to go walk on it or drive on it. The problem is it's not sand. It's glacial silt. It's the consistency of of flour. And it's very dangerous. People know that you don't drive on it. People know you don't really even walk on it. To ignore the warnings can be deadly. But there was a couple that drove out onto the flats in their Jeep at low tide. And the Jeep got stuck. So the wife got out to push, and she got stuck. And he got out to try to get her out, and he couldn't. And they worked and worked and worked and realized the tide starting to come back in. Until he went for help, it was too late. She was stuck, and there was no way to get her out. Because as the tide starts to come back in, and the water undercuts this glacial silt, it turns to concrete, in essence. And you are stuck. And she drowned. They ignored the warnings. I mean, it was a beautiful day. It was a sandy beach. What could go wrong? They ignored the warnings and it cost this woman her life. It is dangerous dangerous for us to ignore the warnings that the writer of the book of Hebrews is giving us. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God is giving us these warnings. And so the third element of the warning is that we will not escape Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? There is no escape. Look at verse 2. Let's read, let's read verse 2. For since the message declared by the angels, and that is the Old Covenant. Uh, Paul talks about this in Galatians 3, how in some way the angels were, were messengers declaring the Old Covenant. Since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, in other words, every time somebody disobeyed or or transgressed the old covenant, they received an appropriate punishment. If if the message declared by the angels received an appropriate punishment, then verse 3, how much more, if I can add that, Shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation that Jesus has provided for us through the new covenant? Because Jesus is so much greater than the angels. The new covenant is so much greater than the old covenant. If that's what happened there, don't you think it's going to happen here? How in the world do you think we're going to escape if we neglect this salvation? The implied answer to this is that we will not escape. It's not how shall we, like let's figure out a way. It's we won't. Just like that glacial silt, there is no 
escape. And just in case there was any question about how much greater this new covenant, this great salvation is, in verses 3 and 4, the writer goes on to explain how much greater and how much better this is. Look look at verses 3 and 4. It was declared at first by the Lord. In other words, Jesus brought in the teaching of the new covenant. He brought in the teaching of the gospel of salvation, kingdom teachings. And then it was attested to us by those who heard, apostles and teachers and, 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 and preachers, people that passed on what they heard from Jesus. It was attested to us. Verse 4, while God also bore witness. In other words, God the Father verified this new covenant coming by signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Jesus did signs and wonders and miracles. In Acts, we saw signs and wonders and miracles to confirm that Jesus had come. The new covenant was here. Again, the whole point of the book of Hebrews is to make us see how gigantically huge, how utterly magnificent, how beyond imagination Jesus really is. He is far superior to the angels, to Moses, to the Old Testament law that these Hebrews believers were tempted to go back to. He is better than anything this world could possibly offer. He is the ultimate. Gosh, you guys are dead. He is the ultimate. Nothing is better. Jesus is supreme. He is the best. He is better than the best. This writer is sending us a profoundly Jesus-centered message and warns us here that if we neglect him, if we neglect his salvation work, if we drift away from our relationship with him, we will not escape appropriate consequences. You get that? There is no escape. If you're drifting, if you're neglecting, you will pay the price. What's the price? Well, for those of us that are true believers, it's discipline. It's correction. My dad had this board. It was a one by two. And I don't mean three quarters by one and a half. I mean it was a one by two. We called it the stick. It was legendary. I think my oldest brother still has it. We were terrified of the stick. A lot of correcting took place with that stick. We all signed it. Our names are all over it. (laughs) Numerous times. I remember the time my oldest brother was babysitting us and he took the stick and he hit hit the chair with it to warn us and he broke it. And he was terrified that the judgment of God was going to fall on him. We glued it together, and unfortunately, it still worked. (laughs) Now, I know it was for our good, but at the time, I was looking for any kind of escape I could get. But there was no escape. Over in chapter 12, the writer talks a good bit about discipline. Uh, Let me just read a couple verses out of chapter 12. Uh, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. Let me stop there. That's the part we want to avoid. Yeah, we know it's for our good, but wouldn't we rather avoid it if we could? But if we keep drifting, if we keep neglecting, there is no escape. 
All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, I do want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Just flip over a few pages. And I want you to follow what the writer is doing here. Again, we're in Hebrews 2. This is Hebrews 10. Same guy, same book, same writing, same message to the same people. 10.28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, okay, the Old Covenant, anyone who sets it aside, disobeys it, dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. There's the punishment for violating the Old Covenant. Verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? You see that? There's the lesser to greater argument. And the lesser is dying in the Old Covenant. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, in a very small way, it was a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry dad when we were kids. But I'll tell you what, I'll take my dad any day over an angry God. Do we get the seriousness of neglecting or drifting or being careless with the salvation? But there's another more terrifying consequence of not escaping, this idea of not escaping. There's no escape. If you are a person who is neglecting or drifting away from Jesus, from following hard after the Savior, if you're being careless with the things of the gospel, with the new covenant, there is at least a possibility that you're not even a follower of Jesus, that you're not even part of the family. You're fooling yourself, and you're fooling those around you. Man, that is scary. The stakes are eternal. Jesus is the only way. He is the only truth. He is the only life. Don't mess around with this. Don't neglect this. Don't get careless with the amazing gift of salvation for which he paid dearly because he loves us and he's given it to us freely by grace. And when we mess around with it, when we get careless, when we neglect it, when we just kind of drift away from it, ooh, he doesn't like that. And if we really are followers, he's going to come after us and get us. But it might be an indicator that we're not even really followers of Jesus, and that's the scary part. You're going to fool yourself right into hell. We know that the day will come when people will say, but but Jesus, I taught Sunday school. I was a member of Cornerstone. I worked in the youth ministry. And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Oh, there's going to be some, there's going to be some tears on that day. So what do we do? Well, the fourth element of this warning is also the first element of this warning. So if you're taking notes, I know this is confusing, but just take number one and uh, cut and paste it down to number four, which you probably can't do because you're doing it with pen and paper. Um, 
The fourth element is we have got to pay much closer attention to what we've heard. Right back to the beginning. In light of all this, pay attention. It terrifies me to think that some of you who call Cornerstone your church body, your spiritual family, could be drifting, could be neglecting, could be being careless in how you're following Jesus, and you're intentionally or unintentionally just kind of letting it go. Understand that your drifting affects us all. We're a body. We're a family. And when one member suffers, we all suffer. When one member drifts, we all pay the price for that. Let me, let me assure you that we as your pastors, your spiritual leaders of this church, want each one of, the, of you, of everybody who calls Cornerstone home, to fall deeply in love with Jesus. We want you to let the things of earth fade. We want to fix our eyes on Jesus alone. We want to become more and more passionate about following him. That's why we exist as a church. Not a social club. It's not, you know, if you want that, go join the Moose or the Elks or the Rotary or whatever's out there. We're here to follow hard after Jesus. We're here to open his word and see what it says and then follow him. Let me close with four suggestions that you might, if if you sense the drifting, if you sense that maybe you're being careless, that you're neglecting a little bit, here's four, four things you might do. Number one, repent. Repent right now. The church at Ephesus in Revelation 2 had left her first love. They needed to repent And if you see the drift or the neglect in someone else, do the loving thing after being careful or prayerful and then lovingly confront them. I had to do some repenting this week. I I saw some sloppiness in my walk. I saw some sloppiness in in how I was pursuing Jesus. And I realized it wasn't just sort of a drifting. And I just had to say, God, I am so sorry. I told my wife about it. Second suggestion is get a bigger view of Jesus. As he grows, I think this other stuff will fade. Read Colossians 1. Reread Hebrews 1. Read the Gospels. Later in the book, in chapter 12, the writer is going to say to fix your eyes on Jesus. He's better than the prophets, better than the angels, sovereign over creation. Fall in love with Jesus. Third suggestion is immerse yourself in Scripture. That's the only way to get to know Jesus. Read it. Read it. Every day, read it. Read it all. Talk about it. Study it. Meditate on it. Memorize it. Take classes on it. Let this book be your lifetime pursuit. Not as a book, but as a way to get to know Jesus. And fourth, get around other believers who could hold you accountable, other people that could look at your life and say, uh-uh, no, I don't think so. Again, these, these Hebrew believers, in chapter 10, the writer's going to say, don't neglect meeting together as some of you are in the habit of doing. They were neglecting this. We need one another. You can't do this on your own. Toward the end of his life, C.S. Lewis wrote a letter to a child. I want to leave you with this. 
If you, can, if you continue to love Jesus, nothing much can go wrong with you. And I hope you may always do so. If you continue to love Jesus, nothing much can go wrong with you. And I hope you may always do so. Oh, Lord Jesus. Give us the desire to love you more. Maybe some of us don't even really want to. We want to want to, but we don't know how to want to. It's only by your Spirit. Put within us that passion, that hunger, that craving to know you, to not neglect, to not drift, to not get sloppy, to not be careless with this amazing salvation that you have given us. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus. I pray in your name. Amen.